All right. Well, good morning. Good morning. Great to see everyone. It's a good Sunday morning. Um, I would be remiss if I if this is your first Sunday. I uh, just want to uh, say welcome. Uh, I'm not the normal guy who preaches. Um, so the normal guy who preaches is out today. Uh, he's got a, a hurt back. I'll just leave it at that. So, uh, so in God's providence, he already had me on the, on the books to preach today. And, um, and Jeremiah says to give your sons and daughters in, in marriage. And today is, uh, is, to my, is my anniversary to my wife. So uh, 12 years, uh, they have been... They have been a long 12 years for her and a blink for me. So it has... Uh, been a, uh, a blessing, and uh, I'm grateful this morning. So uh, we're going to be in Jeremiah 29, and uh, let me throw out a couple things to you. Uh, so prayer in school in the name of Jesus, Bibles in hotel nightstands, church buildings full of people on Sundays and Wednesdays, Christian leaders in uh, positions of power in the political sphere and social sphere, the Christian flag, uh, Ten Commandments in marble and granite at the, uh, the courthouse, marriage as defined between one man and one woman. These are all tangible evidences of God's presence for a good number of people who claim to be Christians in America. And uh, maybe there are other realities for you uh, that you see as familiar or essential to your own well-being and experience of the presence of God. But if all these tangible realities were removed, how would you live? If all of those things were taken away and if all those things were out of the public sphere and all those things were out of your tangible everyday experience, how would you live? And you might say... I kind of feel that way now. Those things are, have been or slowly starting to fade away from uh, my everyday life. So how do you live when all of the visible, tangible evidence of God's presence is gone? Would you fight to get them back? Would you boycott? Would you lobby? Would you make America great again? What would you do? Maybe you would find yourself sitting in the living room drinking coffee and talking about the good old days. How would you respond? Would you sit back and disdain society? How would you live? And what would you think if I stood here this morning and I told you that God is moving history in such a way that all those familiar things in which you connect your, pre your experience of the presence of God, that God is moving history to where those are removed for at least three generations, for your lifetime, your kids, and your grandparents, or your grandkids. How would you feel if I stood here this morning and told you that? Would you listen to me? Would you uh, check out? Would you boo me off the stage? Would you never come back? What would be your experience? What would, how would you respond? Or what if another preacher got up here and said, hey, Stephen, relax, chill. God's gonna bring those things back in just a couple years. So just chill out. And you guys don't listen to Stephen, listen to me. How would you respond in a situation like that? Would you take my word or would you take the other guy's word? 2,600 years ago, that happened. 
2,600 years ago, God sent a prophet named Jeremiah to warn, the, to warn Israel of his coming judgment. They had broken covenant, and God told them in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 28, here's the blessings if you obey my covenant. Here's the curses that will come. And God in his patience had long suffered with them. And time and time and time again, they rejected God. And Jeremiah comes and here's his, his main metaphor, adultery. And his, his metaphor for sinning against God is you have been cheating on God for years and God has had the worst marriage in all of history and he has dealt with you and he has been patient with you and now the time has come when judgment comes. And God tells through Jeremiah that all of the visible, tangible evidences of his presence towards them were about to be removed. The land, Jerusalem, the temple, and even their king would be removed. And if you look in Jeremiah 29, verse 10, you can see this. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. Everything Israel saw as essential to their experience, everything that they saw as what it meant to be the people of God was about to be ripped out from among them. It was about to no longer be. All that they had for their well-being was about to be removed. They would no longer be a nation state. They would be exiles. Their king was about to be removed. And here's what Babylon did. They came in and they removed their king and then gave him an allowance. <laughs> How humiliating. They didn't just come in and say, hey, we're going to kill the king. They're going to come in. They took the king and treated him like an eight-year-old boy. In fact, he was an eight-year-old boy. They gave him an allowance. It was humiliating. Their army, Israel's army, was taken into exile. The temple, which had the very presence of God, would be destroyed. And Jeremiah says it's going to be that way for 70 years. For 70 years. Imagine if I come here this morning, I'm like, hey guys, we're going to be setting up chairs in here for 70 years. Rodney is probably running out. He's shaking his head right now. He's like, no, not going to happen, man. Not going to happen. <laughs> I go find somebody else, all right? At the same time, there was a preacher named Hananiah. And he comes to the scene and he says, what Jeremiah is saying is wrong. Why would God do such a thing? This, this isn't the God we know. Why would he do such a thing? Doesn't he want to win the culture wars? Doesn't he want to have dominance among the nations? Why would he do this? And if you notice in Jeremiah chapter 28, verse 3, flip over and you'll see kind of where Hananiah comes on the stage. Uh, I'll spare you verses 1 and 2, uh, mainly because there's a lot of good Old Testament names that I don't want to butcher. So we'll just skip to verse 3, and this is where Jeremiah, or where Hananiah says this. Within two years, I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. So here's Hananiah, and he steps up and he says, no, 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 God's actually sure Babylon's going to come, but in two years, we're going to get all this stuff back that we have as tangible evidences of God's presence. All the vessels that go in the lampstand and all these things that go into the temple, we're going to get those back, and it's just going to be two years. And then when you look in uh, verse 10 of chapter 28, okay, and at this point, Jeremiah, man, like if you hadn't read Jeremiah, take like the next month, it's 52 chapters long. <laughs> so don't take this afternoon, you probably, but 
read through it and you'll see this guy. I mean, what a crazy ministry. This guy at this point is actually wearing stocks. It's a yoke and it's a symbol of, hey, what's happened to me it bound up in this yoke, these bars, these chains. It's about to happen to you, Israel. And, Jer- and Hananiah comes up and he says, no, 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 God's going to break that yoke and he's going to do it in two years. And if you see in verse 10, then the prophet Hananiah took the yoke bars from the neck of Jeremiah, the prophet, and he broke them. And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people saying, thus says the Lord, even so I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations within two years. And then look at this very last little statement. What did Jeremiah do? He went his way, right? Jeremiah's like, okay, it's coming. You're not listening. It's coming. And in two years, the tangible evidence of God's presence were not going to come back. It was going to be 70. So to whom would you listen? Jeremiah or Hananiah? Jeremiah actually steps up at one point and he's like, man, I wish you were right. Jeremiah, if, uh, we won't go all through it, but if you look in verse five and six, Jeremiah says, oh, to the Lord that what you're saying is true. Oh, that this would be true, that this would, that this would happen, Jeremiah says. But Jeremiah knows that it's not the truth, and he not only tells Hananiah that he's wrong, but he also tells Hananiah, actually, you think this is gonna happen in two years? By the end of this year, you're gonna be dead, Hananiah. And chapter 28 ends with Hananiah dying. He's a false prophet. God has a way of removing the familiar, tangible symbols of his presence so he can give his people a fresh understanding of their calling and what he is about in the world. Let me say that again. God has a way of removing the familiar, tangible symbols of his presence so he can give his people a fresh understanding of their calling and who he is for them in the world. And let's look at Jeremiah chapter 29 verses four through seven and we'll see this. Jeremiah 29, four through seven. Let's read again. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and don't decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord for its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Now, this is a really cool passage of scripture. Like just on a napkin, you read that. This is a really cool, like, oh yeah, man, like let's build houses and let's plant gardens and, you know, hey, let, let's like increase and let's seek the welfare of the city um, and, you know, let's, let's see uh, things get better in the world. Like that's, who doesn't want that, <laughs> right? Who doesn't want that? It's a really cool passage. And right now it's kind of hip and cool in our little circle of churches in Acts 29 network. Um, everybody likes it. It's a real, so I have gotten to this uh, text and I'm like, man, I get to preach Jeremiah 29. This is awesome. And then it's like, what do I say? There's so much here. <laughs> it's so, there's so much 
here. And so I was listening. I, I had heard before, there's a guy named Tim Keller. He ministers in New York City. And he uh, has preached what I think is like the greatest sermon on this passage. So after today, when you're like kind of muddy about what this is about, go listen to Tim Keller and you'll kind of get a little more clarity, okay? So uh, I thought about just like giving him uh, like, hey, let me reference Tim. Like Oscar's shaking his head. He knows what I'm talking about. Just like reference uh, Tim Keller and then like just preach the whole sermon. But the Lord was put on my heart that's probably not the best thing to do. So, uh, but on paper, these are really sweet ideas. And Jeremiah wrote these words 2,600 years ago, and it wasn't cool, and it wasn't hip, and it wasn't even something that people got excited about. It was opposed. Hananiah said, no, get rid of it. Two years. Don't, don't worry about the city. Live, live outside. Live outside the city. Don't, don't jump in and try to be involved. But look at the middle part of verse four. Notice there's a word that shows up twice in verse four. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from, Babylon, from Jerusalem to Babylon. Exile, exiles. That's not cool. <laughs> Being driven away from your homeland, not cool. Babylon was about 1,700 miles from Jerusalem, okay? So, um, they, they weren't flying these people on first class flights. You know, it wasn't a Babylonian air. It wasn't, you know, there wasn't an Uber where you just swat. I don't know how Uber works. I live in Pecan Grove. Like, uh, so it's like, they, it wasn't like an ease of transport from Jerusalem to Babylon, 1,700 miles. Like we're walking from here to Dallas, to Oklahoma, to what's, what's even past Oklahoma? Kansas, uh, Nebraska, South Dakota, North Dakota. And then we get up to like, what is it? Uh, Manitoba or something. And, you know, like uh, two people in this room probably know who Manitoba is. And that, like, we're walking all the way from here to there. Exiles, driven from everything we know from everything that we know. And God says to Israel, I want you to pray for the very people who are driving you away from your home. I want you to pray for them. The very people who have disrupted everything you know, I want you to pray for your enemies. And I don't want you just to pray for your enemies on their behalf, I want you to seek their welfare. I want you to live in such a way that you don't flourish unless they flourish. <sighs> okay, excuse me while I just kind of take a detour here in Dallas, and that's it. There were waves of deportation to Babylon. And Jeremiah is saying, you gotta go, you gotta go. God's coming into Jerusalem. He's gonna wipe it out. You gotta go, go serve the king in, in Babylon. And people would not go. And Babylon came in at one point and they ransacked Jerusalem. They set up siege for a couple of years. Lamentation describes the story. It's horrible. I won't even say some of it because we have little kids in here. It's horrible what happened there. God says, I want you to love them and seek their welfare to the point that your flourishing is connected to theirs. And I want you to love Babylon as you love yourself. You've got to understand the way that Babylon asserted its influence in the world. See, there were previous empires uh, like Egypt, for example, 
who would come in and they would conquer a people. And we, you know, we have the book of Exodus and we see this. They would conquer a people and they would bring them in and they would enslave them and make life hard for them. And what Babylon realizes is that doesn't actually work because those people end up getting ticked and they uprise and they overthrow your nation, which is what happened with Israel, the exodus of Egypt, right? They left and there was a big gap in their society. And so Babylon said, um, you know what? Uh, we're gonna spread our rule and our influence not by pushing people down. We'll push them down just for a little bit, but then we're gonna bring them in. And that was the way that Babylon exercises authority. So over time, what they would do is they would give the best that Babylon had to offer to the peoples that they dominated. So that you would take on Babylonian ideas, Babylonian culture, Babylonian values, Babylonian education, literature, all of it. We have the story of Daniel. There's a lot going on in the Old Testament at this time. Daniel is, is happening during this time. If you book, read the book of Daniel, Daniel is, uh, you know, Daniel in the lion's den, Meshach, Shadrach, Abednego, all these, like if you grew up in church, you know these names. That was happening during this time. And Daniel was a young, good-looking, skillful man. And he displayed a great amount of intelligence. And so Babylon said, oh, let's take him. And they brought him in. And for three years, he enjoyed the best that Babylon had to offer. They even changed his name from Daniel to Belteshazzar. I mean, that's a full, like Mishral. I thought that was hard. Belteshazzar. Like, what in the world? You know, they, because what were they doing? It's assimilation. Cultural assimilation. They're bringing them into so that over time, they would lose their identity and their values and they would take on Babylonian. And then the, then the power would go from pressing them down to bringing them in to now changing their hearts and making them identify as Babylonians. And this approach, assimilation, is when a minority group comes to resemble a dominant group. It's language, it's literature, it's value, it's culture, it's behaviors, it's belief. And you can see this in Jeremiah 29, verse six, where God tells them, look what he says, at the end of verse 20, or verse six, 29.6, multiply there and do not decrease. Don't fully assimilate to the culture. Don't partially assimilate to the culture. Don't decrease. Don't decrease. I've taken away the familiar, tangible symbols of my presence, the land, king, Jerusalem, temple, not so that you can assimilate into a broader culture. I've taken away the land, the king, the temple, and Jerusalem so that you can understand what's underneath the heart of all things, of all those things, loving your enemies. See, in Israel's history, they didn't have a king, right? And what did they want? They want to be like the nations for so long. And if you know the Old Testament, they wanted a king, wanted a king, and finally God gives them a king. And God loves them, Right? Israel's being an enemy, but he gave them what they wanted. He loved them. <laughs> like, what? And that's what's underneath all of this. Land, king, temple. I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you know, this is, this is what God, the heart of God is about, is loving enemies. Most societies and cultures and cities will tell you to love other people. Most worldviews will tell you love yourself. No one says, love your enemies. But the mark of what it means to be the people of God is this. Love your enemies as you love yourself. Why? Because God demonstrates his love in this. 
that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, while we were enemies with God, he reconciled us to him. That's, what, that's the heart of the gospel. That's the good news. That's, if, you, if you don't know anything about Christianity, that's why we're here in this room. Because at one point, I was an enemy of God. I took his air that he gave me, I breathed it in, and I, I committed adultery on him. I was an enemy of God. And yet God didn't squash me. He brought me in, but you know how he brought me in? At his own expense. He reconciled him, us to himself by exiling his son. That's what the death of Jesus was. He goes and dies on a cross. And you know where he goes and dies? Outside the city of Jerusalem. He's exiled. All of my sin, all the, the enmity between me and God has been put on Jesus and Jesus was sent out. Colossians 1, we read, um, uh, we don't have to turn there, but we read this as our call to worship. Colossians 1 says this, that uh, I think it's in verse 13 or 14, that uh, God transferred us from the domain of darkness and moved us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption. And do you know what redemption is? The forgiveness of sins. You want something tangible? Give generously to your enemy and seek their good. You want something physical you can put your hand on and see that'll change you? Love your enemy and seek their good just as you would for yourself. What Hananiah was saying is, okay, Israel, go to Babylon, but use it for the benefit of our people. Don't engage. Just kind of hang out and uh, buckle down for two years. Enjoy the benefits of Babylon. Uh, take what you can from it. And uh, they're, they're, we're good. They're evil. Don't engage. Just kind of consume. And then in two years, God will bring us back to the way that things ought to be. Stick to our tribe. And Babylon is saying, no, 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 come on into our city. Use it for your personal benefit. Take from the city. Stay in the city. Move on into our neighborhoods. Take our jobs. Come on in. Take the good neighborhoods. Take the positions of power. But remember what Babylon was doing. Underneath all of that offer was not a genuine love for Israel. What was it? It was a way to advance their own agenda. It was a sneaky ploy to rule and dominate Israel. You see, there's nothing like the gospel. Nothing like the gospel. Babylon had exiled these people. They had exiled them. If they truly cared about them, why exile them? Right? Why rip them from everything that they know? And God says, neither assimilate to the broader culture nor associate only with your tribe. He has a completely different approach that is neither religious like Hananiah nor political like Babylon. God's approach for you is something completely different. And one day God shows up on the scene and just listen to these words. This is what he says. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. 
And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two. They're going to take you to Manitoba, 1,700 miles, go 3,400 miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow. Give. It's the main idea here. Give to your enemies. And notice also what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Everyone says that. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Since our church has started, we've had a prayer calendar. And, you know, uh, some of us do it like frequently and then like kind of fell off and then some, oh yeah, I should do that. But we, some of us in this room have a prayer calendar and it's like, hey, today's my day. How can I pray for you? You got an enemy on that prayer calendar? I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain, the, the rain that came through this past week, rain on both the just and the unjust. And that was from God. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? What is that? How hard is that? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you only greet your brothers, if you're only kind to your tribe, the people that look like you, sound like you, have the background that you do, if, if you only love your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Don't even the Gentiles do that? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And this is what Jeremiah 29, 7 is all about. What does God say? Seek what? the welfare, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray on, for its behalf, for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Jeremiah 29, seven is all about love your enemies as yourself, give to them and seek their good. You know, this, this word welfare, we, we talk about it uh, quite often in this church, actually. It's the Hebrew word shalom. We, we mention that. If you've been around here at any time, you have heard Lance or Josue, anyone who gets up here and preaches has talked about this idea of shalom because it is a, a value that we have as a church. And simply put, shalom means peace, but it's not the kind of peace where you just kind of feel good between two people. It's, it's the... All things work together for the good kind of reality. It's a social, economic, financial, racial, cultural, all these things work together for the good. It's the way that things ought to be when God created earth. It's a picture of the things working together the way they ought to be. And God says, don't just pray for Babylon. Move in and make it look like the garden was supposed to be. And this is why our tagline as a church is for Jesus and what? For good. We're not, we're not here in Richmond to consume Richmond. We're here, we want to see Richmond better. We want to see Richmond better. We want to see good come to this city. And God removed the land and king and temple and 
even Jerusalem, so Israel could experience a fresh understanding of what it means to be his people, enemies who have been reconciled at God's own expense. So what would be the tangible if it's not a land, if it's not a king, if it's not Jerusalem, if it's not their political boundaries, what would be the tangible presence of God for these people while they are in exile? Look at Jeremiah 29.5. What does he say? Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Houses and gardens. Houses and gardens. The everyday life. This is where God is going to enter into and this is how they're going. There is no temple. There's no temple in Babylon. They're gonna have to understand what does it mean to follow Yahweh? What does it mean to be a people of God? And God says, you know what it means? Go build a house. Do you understand what it takes to build a house? I know in Houston, like Harvest Green is crazy. Like it's, it's like, it started a couple years ago. I remember there's nothing but dirt. A lot of us remember like, you know, Katie, you remember when it was just like empty and now it's just like, man, houses pop up all the time here. That's, that's because uh, you've got developers who come through and that's their job, right? They can crank out houses four to six months. (laughs) There is no, you know, Israelite home and garden. Like there, there's, there's build a house, i.e., uh, whatever that means, uh, translation, <laughs> build a house. You're going to be here a long time. You're going to be in Babylon a long time, 70 years. You, your kids, your grandkids, settle in. And where God is going to meet his people is in the every day. Not prayer in the name of Yahweh before school, not copies of Torah in the hotels, not temple full of people during the week, not even being a moral majority in Babylon. God was giving his people a fresh understanding of their calling, of who he is, and the tangible reminders of that is centered on a house and gardens. See these two words, build and plant, build houses, plant gardens. These are borrowed from Jeremiah's call in Jeremiah chapter one, verse 10. Let's see if we can throw up Jeremiah 1.10. Let me show you this. If, if, you are, um, oh, if you're a male and you're over the age of eight, this is appealing to you on so many levels. God comes to Jeremiah and he says, I'm calling you into ministry, Jeremiah. See, I've set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and break down. Yeah, God, let's go destroy some stuff, man. Stick me over those nations. Let's go destroy some stuff. Destroy and overthrow. I'm in, God. Yeah, call me to this. This is the kind of ministry I want. Like, Dudes are in here like, yeah, man, I remember taking those Legos and just like snapping them in half, you know? And like getting older and like fixing stuff. Yeah, God, I'm down for that. I'll take it. To build and to plant. <laughs> and you know what happens? Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. What happens is he spends most of his ministry realizing that pluck and break down, destroy and overthrow is judgment upon the people of God. And when he finally gets to say, we're gonna build and plant, you know where it happens? In Babylon. 
among their enemies. And what happens is we come to Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness, plans to prosper you, plans uh, for a hope and a future. And we stick that on our coffee mugs and we think this is great. Look, let's, this is like the John three sixteen of American culture, right? We just take that in and not even knowing Hananiah had a hope, didn't have a hope in a future. Hananiah died. He was a false prophet. So does that apply to everybody? Mm, doesn't seem that way. You know what the hope in the future is? That God will stick faithful to his covenant and his oath. Thus saith the Lord, the word of God. Not, not your circumstances. And that hope in that future, do you know where it comes? In a Galilean peasant named Jesus of Nazareth. And all the promises of God find their yes and amen in him. And if you come to Jeremiah 29 and you think this is a seven-step success for triumph and winning the culture wars, you're going to be sorely disappointed. This is, God's going to call you to be around your enemies, and most of it's going to be filled with disappointment. Most of it is going to be filled with hurt. But my plan and my hope and my future for you is Christ. And God has begun to break into a hostile world and reconcile people to himself. God is calling you to endure disappointment and hardship and adversaries and your enemies. And yet, still in the midst of that, seek the shalom of the city. How can you do that? The only resource for that is if you orient your life around the gospel of Jesus Christ where God has done that and God has been patient with you, where God has given you and given you and given you when you ask. But yet on some hand, in the wisdom of God, it was good for him. He sought my good and didn't give me what I asked. There's wisdom in that. And we all have this call in our lives so we know a little more of the presence of God. And this is the same God who sought the shalom of the world at his own expense for his enemies while enduring the shame. So let me ask you, as we live as exiles in this, uh, continue, we be continually become a, more of a minority in our culture. A Christian worldview is so foreign. Now, a biblical worldview, cultural Christianity may be a biblical worldview is becoming more and more foreign. So let me ask you this, businessmen, entrepreneurs, in your business plan, do you just have for your own flourishing or do you think about how can I even help my competition? How, how, how can I bless the city? You think that way? I don't. I don't. Artist, do you try to change the city or do you what Jesus did and that is make it same but new? Public servants and teachers, do you model the wisdom of what it takes to walk the tension of giving and yet seeking the good of others? There are times when you have to know when to turn the other cheek and when exercising the law is actually for someone's good. Someone comes to you and, they, and they, they're employed. Let's just give you a practical example here. They're employed by you 
and uh, they ask, they ask, they ask, and you give, you give, you give, right? And then they take advantage and they steal from you. What do you do? What do you do? You know what? Maybe the best thing for me to do here is to, for, to continue to forgive. Maybe the best thing for, for me here is I forgive you, but you can no longer work here because this is not for your good. This is not an easy cut and paste. This is, requires wisdom and thinking through the gospel on every single level as we deal in our culture and our society. Parents, will you forgive when someone hurts your kid? Will you say to your enemy, I forgive you, and at the same time, I exercise wisdom for what's good for that person is probably not to be around my kid. But yet, at the same time, telling my kid, God is near to us when we, God loves the brokenhearted. God, God is near to the brokenhearted. Don't put, your, don't put your hope in circumstances. Don't put your hope in even your friends. Put your hope in Jesus. And trust that he's going to work for the good of your life. So I don't have all the answers. I have, um, I, I, have, I have read through this passage this week and wrestled. And I probably had like 20 things uh, on my mind. But the one thing the Lord kept putting on my heart and, and, and convicting me of is, do I love my enemies? And what does that look like to genuinely love my enemies? And I can't give you the answer for every single case that you're going through. But what I can tell you is, consider the gospel. Consider that God has brought you in if you follow Christ, that God has brought you in even when you were an enemy of his. And how do you push that love and that mercy and that grace back out, all the while trusting, trusting in the justice of God. It's not easy, man. It's not easy. In fact, it's, it's gonna be messy. But our hope is not in our circumstances. Our hope is in our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we love you because you first loved us and we uh, pray that you would uh, instill in us a value of tangible redemption and that is loving our neighbors as we love ourselves and even more so loving our enemies, God. That does not come natural and we pray that you would work in our heart, that we would be a people, that we would be a people who seek the welfare of the city, not because it's a cool tagline, but because you have genuinely changed our hearts and we trust in your justice. How could we not, God? How can we not when you have endured us and you have been merciful towards us? Let the gospel, let the gospel so center in our hearts, Father, that we would live as a family and Lord, that we would exercise our priesthood and that we would live on mission for your glory and your renown. It's in Christ's name, amen.